Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JG McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. Um, I did just get bit by a weird little pancake alien, and so if I start going insane over the course of this episode, don't hold it against me. All right. Well, I think you've got your excuses set up well in advance, so that's fine. We'll be able to let you off the hook. This week, we are coming to the grand end of the first season, which means we are going to be tackling Operation Annihilate. And as always, we're not going to do it alone. So say hello, Bri. Hi, I'm Bri. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, I am enjoying my first day off uh, in a while. And it's uh, so hot that I don't want to move, but I'm still doing really good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fair enough. Excellent. Well, it's lovely to have you along on the podcast. As we always do when we have our our guests on, we like to ask them what their history with Star Trek is, how they came to it, what the show is about it. So, um, yeah, what's what's Star Trek to you? Yeah. uh, So I thought a lot about this over the week, and I realized that, like, for some weird reason, Star Trek, unlike with other things I'm really into like comics and star wars and such i can't actually remember the like first instance of it you know like i can remember my dad showing me star wars and and being like whoa and like i can remember the first x-men comic that i ever bought but with star trek it just it's like always been there uh like it must have been i was a young enough age that like i don't remember it and so i just have always been watching it um like and i was super obsessed with it when i was a kid like i read all sorts of books and uh you know like young starfleet books and uh like got into the comics and uh but like for me the thing that like is uh what i always think of when i think of star trek and like why it's really emotional for me is that my mom and I, it was like our routine every Sunday night before we went to bed. It's like the syndicated Next Generation episode of the week uh, in Jersey. And so like for me, my Star Trek love was always like Next Generation and DS9 for that reason. Um, like that's what I associate with it. You know, if I ever watch an episode of Next Generation, I'll text my mom. Um, and like because of that, I've actually still only seen like a smattering of uh original series episodes and like not even all the most uh famous ones although i did i did watch all the movies so it's always felt like kind of mythological my connection to it like it's just always been there uh like i always thought of like kirk as this like amazing thing but i didn't actually know him very well the way i knew picard and cisco and stuff cool excellent um have you ventured into 21st century star trek at all yeah like uh the Chris Pine movies and the, the discovery stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I watched, I think pretty much all of it except prodigy. I'm making my way through lower decks. Now strange new worlds is amazing. It's just like, it's what yes. it's everything I want. It's everything I want from star Trek. And like, I watched the other star Trek stuff and I'm like, it's fine. I guess, you know, I, I can't stop. It's like star Wars. Right. It's just like feed me the slop. But, uh, mm. Strange New Worlds is like, oh yeah, they got it. They figured it out. They know they know how to make a Star Trek again. It is a shame that um, Prodigy is, as of this recording, still delisted from everywhere as they try is to it shop really? it. Yeah, oh yeah, they took it down. Oh. I think they're going to keep airing it linearly on Nickelodeon or something, but it's oh, all wow, okay. less. Yeah, because the tax write-off, and it is very frustrating. Like, I, they have a second season. They say it will air in some form. But also, it's not on Paramount Plus anymore for tax reasons, which is like the worst thing. <laughs> but it's a um, bummer when that happens. Yeah. yeah, I'm still waiting for Summer Camp Island to finally air its last season, mm-hmm. and it's like, who knows when that'll happen? Right. Uh, I don't know if there's a physical release you can grab or rent or whatever, or I mean, pirate it. <laughs> but, yeah, I will um, find it through extremely legal means. <laughs> yes, uh, Prodigy. It's very much in the middle of new star trek shows it's much more watchable than picard or even discovery it's not quite as sharp as lower decks of strange new worlds but if you can get over the all agesness of it it is very much like a very uh i don't know just a nice watch just good characters good performances 
interesting stories. Yeah, it's it sounds like, nice. It sounds like it's very Voyager tied, which is the one Star Trek I've like not watched any of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm I'm like, should I wait until I finally do Voyager, which is like sometime going to happen in the next year or so? <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Lovely. Well, thank you very much, Bri. And um, Kev, if you'd care to give us our usual uh, episode summary. All right. Uh, The Enterprise is tracking a sort of plague or some kind of sickness that has gone from planet to planet over the course of centuries. Uh, A few years ago, it attacked one planet nearby, and then another planet seems to be succumbing to it. Uh, This plague wipes out civilizations. And when they get to the new planet, which also has Kirk's brother, played by up-and-comer William Shatner (laughs) on the cast, uh, he's also already dead. And his uh, wife, Kirk's sister-in-law, and his son, Kirk's nephew, are also succumbing to this problem, which are, as the aforementioned, pancake-shaped aliens, which attack people, inject a stinger into their spinal cord, and drive them insane with their venom. Um... I may have missed how this leads to them reproducing and actually being a thrivable species. I, if so, I am sorry. Um, if it is explained at all. But uh, they infect Spock. Spock uses his Vulcan mind powers to try to overcome the madness. Is able to go down the planet and rescue a sample. They figure out that the, the alien is susceptible to extreme visible light. They uh, fry one with that. They fry the one Spock inside Spock with that, and then realize, oops, we don't have to use visible light, even though it nearly blinded Spock, we could just use ultraviolet light. So they douse the planet with that, kill the creatures, Spock is fine because of Vulcan biology, and they go on their merry way. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, as we always do, we like to get our initial general thoughts out of the way, and Brian, you're our guest, so um, how did you find this episode? I, I thought it was you know, fine. It was entertaining enough. It was like, uh, I, it's been a long time since I've watched an original series episode of Star Trek. So it was just kind of fun to like be in that, that vibe and that chemistry between Bones and Kirk and, and Spock. Um, I, I, I thought it was interesting that like, if I didn't know it was a season finale, I wouldn't know it was a season finale, except for maybe that it's Kirk's family is in it. It just kind of feels like any other episode. Yeah. I think that's a very of the time thing. I don't know. Yeah. Like we're a couple de at least a couple decades from this episode. You have like season finale cliffhangers and cheap shots like that, which yeah. someone would, uh, there's a recent show. I guess I won't spoil which one that does one. And a bunch of people were complaining that it did one because they thought it was a mini series instead of there was a very big cliffhanger at the end. And I was like, ah, that's how it used to be. And then someone had to remind me, and that wasn't good. You were, If you were scared Farscape wasn't coming back for the next season or Cheers, then uh, it wasn't fun to just be left hanging for a few months. So, and fair dues. I can't just be reactionary about everything about television these days. But um, yeah, this is before even that, where you have, yeah, it's just another episode. Like the season ends and beginnings don't mean anything beyond there's a break next time. Yeah, it's a funny one. I, I find it, a very unsatisfying episode truth be told there's there are bits in it which i like but they're very few and far between and so much of it just feels like going through the motions i think if you didn't know that this was the last season of the episode you could probably work it out for the amount of effort that most people are putting in it just doesn't really uh live up to very much we've been coming off you know star trek's been on a you know a real hot streak you know i mean apart from anything we've just had city on the edge of forever Admittedly, that's a difficult act to follow. <laughs> that's fair enough. But there's just so little in this that, that feels like it's got any kind of reason to exist other than ho-hum, here's another 50 minutes of television. Yeah, yeah. It's a 50 minutes that goes down kind of smooth, though. Like, a lot of it is not much happening. But I wasn't actively bored or angry with it i was just kind of i was just it's, it's a much more passive watching experience than a city on the edge of forever a balance of terror or, or even i don't know a court martial or errand of mercy um it's just yeah it's just a easy episode but there are i don't know there's enough in it and we, we can get the specifics as we go on but there just are moments here and there that I really like, and then they're just few and far between. 
I mean, it kind of reminds me of like when I was watching every Next Generation episode, you know, I did a big project of just like, even though I've seen almost all of these, I'm going to watch it all in order. And like, there are those episodes that are not good. Some of them are like really bad, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. there's like something a little bit comforting sometimes about some of those not very good episodes because I'm just like, here's my guys. I'm watching this thing with my guys in it, you know? And like when they're not so bad that they're painful to watch, there's something like kind of almost nicer than the best episodes because I can just kind of put it on and veg out. And that's sort of how this one felt for me. It was just like, I sort of had it on in the background last night when I had had a really long day. Whereas if I was watching something like city on the edge of forever, I would have been like, okay, I actually have to engage with this. Cause yeah. it's like a classic, you know? Yeah. And I, I think this is sort of where my newbie experience comes in. And I think hmm. I almost don't like mention it enough on this podcast. That I, how my difference is watching it the first time is from everyone else. But I think this is where it's like, I've now seen 29 episodes of this show mm. and yeah, I now have this connection to these characters. It is my, they are my guys now. <laughs> so that almost be like, that's sort of the appeal is like, Oh, I, this is so fun to see how bones reacts this way, how Spock reacts this way, how Kirk does this very um, homoerotic thought about Spock <laughs> and all of that, just knowing the characters better. And I think that's the strength of the writing as well. Where it's if this episode came much earlier in this season, it would be so much more boring because they would have much less of these character moments that are the best part of this episode. That is the Kirk Spock McCoy of it all, and to a lesser extent Uhura, Sulu, and Scott. Um, the they know how to write these characters so well at this point, and everything good about this episode comes from that innate knowledge that that very television kind of writing where do you have the built-up love and affection for these characters, even if things aren't changing week to week because it's an episodic show, not a serialized one? Do you still just have the history uh, seeping in, um, both behind the scenes, so they know how to give these characters these moments, and also, like I said, like you, and like you said, in front of the screen, we are just uh, watching it, and we have so much affection for them at this point. Yeah, that's a really good point about, like, if it had come earlier in the season you you know you wouldn't enjoy it because you don't like know these people yet you know you can't like mm-hmm. force that kind of love for the characters that only comes from like doing the work yeah i see th- i think the problem is though is that some of the work the episode does with the characters feels i don't want to say inconsistent but there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of moments in the script where things are being written towards what the episode needs to do rather than how the characters would necessarily react. I think the biggest example of it is that kind of cliffhanger scene where uh, Spock goes to the transporter room after he's like managed to control the pain. And, and like normally you would think, oh, right, he would call the bridge and say, Captain, uh, I've managed to control the pain. I think I can beam down to the planet, capture one of these creatures for analysis. But no, instead he goes to the transporter room, beats up the transporter chief, uh, <laughs> neck pinches another one and tries to beam down before anybody can stop him. There's no logic to that, if you'll excuse the very obvious uh, use of the L word. It's just there to provide that act with a bit of a cliffhanger so that you go into the commercials. It, it, it doesn't make any sense from a character perspective he's not possessed at that point he's back in control of himself and indeed two minutes later Kirk goes yeah sure knock yourself out go for it uh it, it just doesn't make any sense and there's lots of moments like that in the script where it's just it, it's it's a contrivance I suppose really mm-hmm. um like like the fact that you know we have to wait for Spock to come out of the chamber and walk into a table before he thinks to say by the way everyone <laughs> I'm blind <laughs> so, you know um there's just so many moments like that and and it's a shame because it is quite undermining to the episode yeah that is fair the like attacking the transporter is definitely there to make you be like what's up with spock is he still possessed like it doesn't yeah it's he's sort of fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm i'm also not i mean i think it's funny in a meta way but i'm also not crazy about the ending where it's like spock is blind and make a big deal about that and Oh, actually, Vulcan's <laughs> eyes are different. It don't worry about it, and he worried everyone for no reason. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a hacky ending. Uh, there's no, yeah. there's no doubt about it because it's such a, it's such a 
a DSS smasher now. If it had been something that yeah. had been mentioned once in any of the preceding 28 episodes, fair enough. But it just, it comes out of nowhere and it will, spoilers, it will never ever be mentioned again. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. just there to resolve this so that McCoy doesn't have to spend his time um, you know, repairing a million people's eyes with surgery. That's kind of it. It's, it's, yeah, it's not yeah. great. I, I will say though, um, hiding that to be a dramatic queen is very much in line with Spock's character. So that I'm um, the <laughs> transporter thing. Um, there is a very like if you go to Memory Alpha for this episode, there's a whole like paragraph about like this episode is important because we learn more about Vulcan, you know, physiognomy. And, like, <laughs> guys, do we? Do we really actually learn more? It's essentially important. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 th I think it's um. I think it's a, kind of interesting as well because, like, like Namoy plays the role well when Spock's lost yeah. his fight. I, I think he does a really good job of capturing that kind of um, sense of Spock just not being able to understand what's going on around him, not being able to see. He he does a really good job of that. But I feel it takes. It's, it's another one of my kind of criticisms of this episode. Is that I feel it takes a long time for anybody to start acting, both acting. In, in, in the Star Trek episode sense and, you know, the dramatic acts sense. Um, because so many of the early scenes just feel like nobody is putting in the work. Kirk never gets a chance to have anything close to an emotional reaction uh, when it comes to... Like, in, in fact, the whole family subplot is just awful. It really doesn't contribute anything other than runtime. Kirk never really reacts to it. He barely even seems to... I mean, he's not even upset. He's certainly not upset when his sister-in-law dies. He barely even seems to notice that she has. Um, he gets a slight lip wobble when his, when his, when his brother is dead. Um, and like the, 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 the nephew, or as he weirdly referred, keeps referring to him, like the son of my brother, like two <laughs> or three times he says that. And then eventually it seems like somebody tucked him to one side and said, you know, there's a word for that. It's nephew. Oh, I, and then he never, then he just says nephew after that. It's a really odd beat. Anyway, yeah, he, I, I, he's, he's cured I off screen. We never have to see him again, which is fine because it wasn't very good. Um, but it's just like so much of that just nothing. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was like, bro, your brother just died. Like, you, you don't mm -hmm. seem to care about this literally even at all. Like, he, he does like a moment of looking like a little, I don't know, like stoic, I guess. But I don't know. If I found my brother dead from alien parasites and he was just me with a beard, I would be like really sad about it, you know. What this means is now Strange New Worlds has an episode where Kirk says to Sam, I will not be mad when you die. I won't be upset at all. <laughs> um but yeah, I let me get this fun fact in now, just like looking at Wikipedia Memory Alpha, my usual extensive research. Um the actor who played uh, Kirk's nephew, Craig Hundley, now goes by Craig Huxley. He is a jazz musician. <laughs> he invented an instrument, like um, a variation of the blaster beam, um, and that he played that instrument on the soundtrack of 10 Cloverfield Lane. So there wow. you go. Yeah. He, That's pretty yeah. cool, actually. <laughs> yeah. And like, he became a jazz musician soon after this episode. Actually, I just realized I was re-looking at the article a couple years after this aired. So he's still like a kid and he released an album called Arrival of a Young Giant. And that is, <laughs> he just keeps playing jazz. It's, I don't know. I guess he'd be in his seventies <laughs> now. I don't, actually, I don't know if he's still playing jazz. The It ends with 10 Cloverfield Lane, which was a few years ago now. But um, yeah, he's still alive at least per Wikipedia. So that is what a, what an interesting career. Uh, the one guest star in this episode who has, Oh no, Eddie Paskey is an extra has a page as well, but yeah, not, Oh, cause he's a recurring extra. Got it. Um, yeah. The one, uh, one time extra guest star in this episode who has a Wikipedia page. And it's because of that. That's really funny. What an interesting career. <laughs> It's a pleasingly mm -hmm. modest album title as well. I, 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 I great <laughs> humility involved in that choice. <laughs> um, it's not. I suppose I, 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 you know, I try and stay positive when we're doing these, um, these episodes of uh, the podcast, and so I ought to try and find something pleasing to say about this one. And it is quite a nice one for our support cast. You know, um, Scotty, Sulu, and Uhura all do get a decent amount of 
to do here. Um, and particularly Scotty, we, we still haven't really seen all that much of him, truth be told. Uh, but, you know, he's on the, he's on the landing uh, party and he gets to do stuff and, and he's, you know, sort of stoic and dependable. Nothing is really revelatory about it, but it's just nice to have that kind of additional presence. And um, especially when the central cast are so pivotal to you know like the execution of this episode just just spending a little bit of time with the other sort of you know secondary crew members does help to flesh everything out a bit it's it's just a nice thing to have in the episode yeah i particularly liked the the moment of uh like kirk getting kind of like asshole-ish with uhura and her Mm -hmm. being like i'm excuse me i know how to do my job sir you know uh i like that they you know give her that moment of standing up to him and i guess that's like the only real time we see kirk kind of acting the way you would expect someone to act if they were worried about their family you know um so i did i did enjoy that moment i i also like kirk never apologizes to her like no he clearly no. he clearly clearly realizes he's been a bit of a dick but he never actually turns around and says oh uh sorry i'm I, I, you know i'm just stressed out because you know my, my bro there might be dead and that mustache is just going to have to be taken into care or something um i don't know stuck in a cage some other damn thing um but he never apologizes to Ahura. but it's another one of those times where you just you can't help but love michelle nicole's because she just mm-hmm. like the way she reacts the way she her eyes just say oh we don't swear at this podcast but you know f you um but she just very calmly <laughs> and very professionally gets on with her job yeah. Um, and it's just it's such a lovely moment of acting for her. She's so wonderful doing that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's I mean it, she really is like one of the undersung heroes. Uh obviously Takei and Montgomery as well. Like <laughs> like they just have such vital like support work to do in a lot of these scripts. And this is it's nice that everyone gets to be here for the season finale. I know it wasn't season finales weren't considered special back then for most cases, but it is nice that we get all six of our main characters in this one. Yeah, it definitely is, and I, I, the way that um, the way that everybody does feel included just adds to that very kind of ensemble-y feel. Um, another one of the criticisms I have of this episode is that I think it's very overwritten. I think there's a lot of ideas, yes. and I think some of those ideas um, could probably have been pulled out in order to be able to give us a little bit more time. With that core cast, like again, the family thing honestly contributes so little. You could just get rid of that. We could actually spend some more time exploring Kirk's um, understanding of the situation, spending a bit more time with Spock when he was blind, so we get to really understand like the impact it's having. More time with our ancillary players, uh, with Scotty, Sulu, and Uhura, like whatever. But um, but the fact that everybody is involved, the fact that everybody is there, at least they all do get their moments. So yeah, I mean, as as much as it can qualify as the season finale in the in the modern sense, that is that is very pleasing. Yeah. Um, and then also. I, I, our central trio all get a lot to do as well. This is a great Kirk, Spock, and McCoy episode. I, I guess a ceiling on great because of the episode they're working with, but mm-hmm. and on relative terms, I mean, they all have at least something interesting to do, big moments to react to. Talking before about how this is a good character episode, at least. Um, I guess starting with McCoy, I really like that moment near the end where he's like, he like starts being kind of like a dick to chapel like oh i you have to be able to help him or you get out of here um but by the end he's like very moved by spock's plight and a lot of that is playing off of how previously in the season they've been at odds a lot of the time yeah that i i did genuinely like that like moment of him saying spock's the best first officer in the fleet uh Mm -hmm. and then obviously it comes back later in like a humorous way but you know he meant it and I don't know. I love that. I love that stuff. You know, that like, yeah, we butt heads, but I know who you are. And I know that like, we need you on the ship type, type Star Trek stuff. Yeah. DeForest Kelly plays the moment of revelation where he, he suddenly twigs that he's made a mistake and he didn't need to use like the full spectrum of light. He plays that incredibly well. Yeah. Um, I mean, from a character perspective, but you know, from an acting perspective, it's really, really good. And it's, you know, it's it's one that it would, I think, be so easy to go a bit, well, a, a, a bit William Shatner. You could easily go quite far over the top with it. But he, he does that lovely sort of thing. And, we've you know, we've mentioned it in the podcast, 
you know, many times, but, you know, he just underplays the moment. He, he, you know, he internalizes that kind of stuff rather than, oh, no, I've made this mistake. Um, and again, it just, it makes McCoy feel so much more relatable. But again, it's it's such a pleasing contrast to the way that, that uh, Kirk would react to it or like the, the flat stoicism of, you know, like Spock saying, you know, an equitable trade. You know, he's lost his sight, but he's regained himself because he's clearly the creature. Um, it, it it is that contrast, and and again, that is that is good writing. Every every one of the the core trio get to react to that event in a way that actually feels true to their character. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, I like their chem. You know, the kind of jokey chemistry at the end of the episode. I always enjoy when they give Spock oh, yeah. the opportunity to be like kind of a snarky jerk. Which you're mm. like, okay, so you don't have emotions, but you have snark, like at all, you know. <laughs> and it's just like rubbing it in his face and and you know, seemingly like insulting his looks as well for for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's funny though. I as we discussed earlier on this podcast, I love those um, end of episode on the bridge stingers. In this case, it's like the best part of the episode because <laughs> there's not much else to recommend elsewhere. But uh, like, yeah. Like you said, bringing back McCoy saying Spock's best first officer and being like, don't tell him I said that is just such a great little bit of ego. Again, really underplayed and played well by Kelly. And then Nimoy underplays and perfectly plays the comeback of the thank you. Um, and the, the line, it's it's corny and eye-rolling, but at this point, you just, it's in a good way. The uh, talking about Vulcan eyes, you forgot about Vulcan ears comment that Kirk makes. <laughs> Like yeah, that's it's a silly joke, but God, that you have so much goodwill for these characters at this point that it, you just really like. And again, Shatner plays that line well too, where he know he's leaning into it being a silly line to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Spock's like little like, uh, oh, you didn't seem to have an emotional reaction to gaining your sight again, and uh, you know, like actually I did because the first thing I saw was was Bones leaning over me, and it's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? <laughs> It's unusual as well because in this episode, it, it that kind of um, it is hokey, but you know it's it's part of the it's part of the framework of the show. Like if you can't forgive those scenes, this probably isn't the show for you. So you know, yes, at a certain <laughs> point, you just have to get on board with that. And I, I it, it pleases me greatly to hear how much you enjoy those scenes, Kev, because I do as well. You know, when when you're coming to this show fresh as you are, it, it's always you know like those moments, like they're they're kind of classic moments for you know the old lags that have been watching it since the crack of doom but you know for newcomers <laughs> it can be a bit kind of like yeah but so i'm really really pleased by by the fact that you like it, it makes me very happy but what i was going to say was it's unusual because the the scene at the beginning of the episode before the title sequence uh, where you have the the uh, denovan ship which is uh, basically committing suicide by flying into the sun um it acts as a very kind of uh, both scenes act as a bookend, one one dramatic, one uh, comedic. Um, and it's unusual that we get quite such... A, like, we often start with scenes on the bridge where we get, you know, like, this is that thing that is happening this week. Um, but here, this, this is a real sense. Like, everybody's kind of following very similarly prescribed roles in the introduction and very similarly prescribed roles in the, uh, in the coda. And it's just a, it's a very interesting use of the of the intro and the outro, um, as the Bonzo Dog would do band would say. Um, and it's it's a very successful paralleling of those two events. It, it, in some ways, almost too successful because, like, the flippancy of the ends. Well, you know, we watched someone kill himself. We've had this horrific adventure. Our first officer has spent the last god knows how many hours in horrific amounts of pain and thought he was blinded, but let's all have a laugh. Um, uh, no, it, it, it's, 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 it's a, like we often have the jokey scenes in the end, but they're not always um, following an episode which has had such a there is something slightly unpleasant about this episode. It's quite almost visceral in a way that's, that that classic Trek kind of isn't, um, and that that makes the tag scene a bit a bit funny. But it does absolutely work on its own mm-hmm. terms, and I I do really like the way that both of those scenes act as 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 a as a lens to to the way that the episode functions. I mean, yeah, I I don't know what to say other than agreed, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's. Is interesting because what works with this episode is the lighter stuff, the lighter touch that is at odds with like the main story that is 
several planets have been wiped out over history and this one is next and millions of people are going to die doom and gloom and yeah it's just very flippant about all that because of the character love that works so well in the best moments but yeah it does kind of defang the whole episode as a whole so how are we feeling about the design of the flying pancakes uh (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I mean, to, to change gears very abruptly there, but you know, no, we have to good... discuss it. <laughs> I like that they melt. I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah. I, love, I love a good goo. So <laughs> it's it's not great. <laughs> still, I'd still nice rather have it. Yeah, I'd still rather have that than like and Avengers movies where the aliens are all generic gray blobs with six arms kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Or like even, even I'd rather have that over like a baby Gorn. (laughs) (laughs) I like that episode a little more than you, JG, but like that was just like, Oh, so it's just, it's a CGI lizard that's chasing them. At least the pancake bat is like something. It's a, it's a swing. It's not something you usually see in the 2020s, let alone the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of design, I kind of loved and hated the design of the planet. It mm-hmm. like it for some weird reason. The thing I kept thinking of is like early David Cronenberg movies set in like mm-hmm. a shot in Toronto, and they all have that kind of aesthetic of like the way the buildings look. But the specific note I took was Epcot Center ass looking planet. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> like that is really what it what the vibe was. You know the like public art next to office buildings weird you know like extremely manicured lawns and kirk's whole like one of the most beautiful planets in the galaxy <laughs> word <laughs> yeah it, it very much is a campus of some kind and it just yeah. they just didn't modify it it's it's just it's almost thought it was a college campus i almost thought it was the same college campus from aforementioned in a previous recommendation conquest of the planet of the apes which is shot around mm. the same time uh, that was University of California, Irvine. This is a the TRW Space and Defense Park, which just seems to be a park with office buildings around it. That's now part now part of Northrop Grumman, but um, I guess was just unaffiliated buildings beforehand. But uh, yes, it is. Oh uh, yeah, aerospace uh, stuff was around there. I see. Mm. I'm just doing quick googling now. But yeah, it's. I mean. I guess it's the same logic between both of those late seventies, early late sixties, early seventies movies and shows, where it's like Southern California has a lot of modernist architecture springing up around here. Let's mm-hmm. just shoot it there, and the rest of the country will think it's the future. <laughs> uh, a, a future with water features, lest we forget. Yes, <laughs> which is nice. I, I I think you know from a from a textual point of view. Uh, it's really great that, you know, when the Federation is setting up, you know, colonies, they consider things like water features to be an essential function mm-hmm. of the way any kind of colonial outpost will function. That's that's really <laughs> kind of, it's the sort of consideration that you don't often get from colonial pirates. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, I don't know. It looks fine but you can also tell it's it's on a budget all star trek mm-hmm. is on a budget but this is really on a budget it all went to yeah. the pancake millions <laughs> all, all three dollars and fifty cents of it yeah. <laughs> um yeah you can you can tell the money's run out at this point as well and that's not fair to the script because that's you know scripts get produced when they get produced and because there's mm. no hierarchy in terms of things like like big episode climaxes or whatever this one just drew the short straw it was the last one to be produced the uh entire first season massively overran in terms of the amount of money um they spent on it to the point where you know destiny basically just went bust um trying to fund star trek so yeah, there's no money left. So we have some, um, you know, aliens made from fake plastic vomit stuck on strings flying around, whacking into Spock's back. Yeah. That's just, just the nature of these things. But like you said, Kev, it's a swing. At least it's not, you know, some other guy in a suit. Yeah. Um, I was looking at the original script featured abruptly different second half of the episode where instead of staying on the planet, they go to the home world of these pancake aliens and try to sort of deactivate the hive mind that way by 
I guess, attacking the queen or whatever, annihilating the central brain. There it is. And that's a different episode. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell if that was cut for budget reasons, probably a factor, but there's also just like that's not very Star Trek at this point. We kind of have a much different sense of the show at this point, and it's that's not the Enterprise flying to a planet and blowing it up is not Star Trek. Well, and just that whole thing about, you know, they killed the giant brain is kind of very right. 50s. Um, I mean, like, like this is a real kind of pulp episode of, of uh, uh, Star Trek. Uh, there's there's no doubt about that. But that that kind of they killed the brain is such a kind of like 1950s idea of, mm. of how this situation would be resolved. I think I'm right in saying that um, uh, Gene Roddenberry didn't like that ending, or maybe it was Gene Kuhn, I can't remember. But, but there was somebody in the staff who, who wasn't keen on that as being the ending. And, and because it was just that kind of like, oh, they blew something up. You know, like there's yeah. no, it's, right. it's just not that dramatic. And yeah, you're absolutely right, Kev. That's just not what Star Trek does at this point. We've we've moved long beyond that. There, there will be and have been episodes where we blew it up is absolutely going to be the conclusion. <laughs> not least of which the Doomsday Machine and the Apple. Um, both real highlights to come. Uh, but there's uh, I didn't say machines very good. Um, but there's uh, yeah, there's just that sense that that Star Trek doesn't need to do that anymore. And if the family drama isn't compelling, it's not. Um, at least there's a sense where you can see that the script has been course corrected to something where it feels much more like the Star Trek that has developed over the course of, of this season. I do want to shout out the title, which is definitely got that great. Uh, like painted cover paperback uh, science fiction novel feel to it. And according again to Memory Alpha, the only Star Trek episode with an exclamation point in the title. <laughs> yes. I, I think I was saying there's a Voyager episode of it as well, but the only oh, one with that... a dash. And original, an original series that still holds true. Yeah. I'm yeah. Saying Star Trek, yeah. Am I correct in thinking? And I genuinely haven't checked this. I'm just, I'm just saying this off the top of my head. It's the Voyager episode, Bride of Chaotica, that's got the exclamation mark in it. Do, do Nailed have... it. Got yeah, it. Well. In <laughs> I really need to get out more. Okay, great. That's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I didn't even have to look it up. What's wrong with me? Right, let's qu quickly move beyond my initial humiliation and, 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 and talk about something else. Um, uh Leonard Nimoy also very good in this episode. Uh, yeah. I want to just circle back. Um, we talked about how he's out of character in some moments, in character in others. But even the out of character moments, he plays it with such an even keeled hand that you really do believe it's the same Spock. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually have a few, like several of my notes were just about like specific Nimoy moments that were played so well. His like, you know, I'm actually I'm not taking this choice lightly. Trust me. Moment is like really good when talking about, mm -hmm. you know, beaming down to the planet and being destroyed. Uh, I, I really dug that. I like those moments where he shows his, you know, for lack of a better word, human side in that way. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's another thing that helps to um, shore up the, well, I was going to say shore up the credibility. I don't know if credibility is the word to use, but, but I'll use it anyway. Fine. Uh, shore up the credibility of the episode because, you know, he again plays it with such conviction. Not all of his pained acting is a hundred percent, I think. Um, but again, I'm kind of putting that down to end of season fatigue. Like I said, I, I think a lot of the earlier uh, half of the episode, there's, there's there's a sense where people are struggling to kind of find the energy levels that they need to help make the script kind of ring true. Uh, mm. But as the episode goes on, as they get more into the dilemma, particularly after. Um, Spock gets, you know, uh, taken over and, and him and, and uh, Kirk get a little cuddle in the stairway. Um, I think after that, he kind of really starts to play it effectively. And, and it just makes all those moments land so much more. Yeah. And then, I mean, speaking of Kirk, I think Shatner also is like picking up a lot of slack where the script is leaving off. I think we are still in a point where we can keep praising Shatner every episode. He's not again he he whiffs the brother reaction and i'm the interacting with his sister-in-law and nephew isn't as convincing but everything with spock and mccoy is just gold as usual because i mean the three of them have such good chemistry at this point mm, yeah definitely 
Yeah, the, the, the sister-in-law reaction is interesting because he kind of almost seems like he's coming on to her at one point. Yeah. I'm not a heterosexual gentleman myself, but I don't think that's how you're supposed to react no. to your brother's wife when your brother is just, <laughs> your brother is just pegged out and is also lying there on the floor. Um, I, I, I don't know. You know, I'd say that, that maybe, maybe I've missed something in the in, in 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 the many years that I, I've been alive, but um, yeah, he does kind of yeah, he, he definitely whiffs that moment, um, and yeah, it's because he plays him, he plays Kirk as being kind of like attracted to this woman, and to an extent, it's understand uh, understandable why Shatner's kind of fallen back onto that because that's been the case with basically every other woman for the last twenty eight <laughs> episodes, yeah. um, but. You know, or at least every other woman in the episode who isn't sitting at the communications console. But it's not the right reaction in this case. And yet he just kind of glides through. And again, it just I'm sure it's just like end of season. We're knackered. We are not thinking about this too hard. But when it comes to it, when the moments actually need to land and when we have the core cast, that rapport is there. I mean, he has very few scenes with, with, his, uh, with his sister-in-law. So there's not an awful lot of time to build up that rapport. But of course, with uh, DeForest Kelly and Leonard Moore, they've spent the entire season being able to build that so they can just draw on it whenever they need it. Yeah, I just fully co-sign that. Like, and again, going back to that end scene, um, like, again, he delivers the Vulcan ears line well, and uh, he's such good, like, camaraderie with them, as you said. Um, I also like the scene where he's consoling McCoy about, like, the mistake he made where... Like they're afraid Spock is permanently blind. He does. He does a really good job being like, just know you could have known, and like taking that like very quiet approach to those lines instead of going over the top. Uh, even though we know he can go over the top of the best of them, I think not enough credit is given to Shatner's at least in this stage of the show's like level control. Yeah, it has been one of the weird things about watching the show is 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 realizing that he is capable of underplaying things. And that is another good example that, yeah, you know, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. Um, and, you know, like, again, it's also a great moment from, from Kelly. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't respond. He, again, he just internalizes everything, but that's exactly how that scene needs to be played. And it, it lands perfectly, but yeah, just like not having him yell, not having Shatner sort of go over the top means that he can, he can pull that kind of emotional resonance out of it much more clearly. Yeah, I, I like the the sort of um, the kind of arc of that reaction too, because when when they first realize that he didn't need to do the whole thing, there's like a moment where Kirk kind of expresses like I don't want to say anger, but there's like a moment of like, oh wow, you messed up, you know. And I think that that's like would be a genuine reaction. And then he does, you know, catch himself, and it isn't your fault. You couldn't have known. But I, I feel like as much as you know character and story wise you would think that bones would have like waited for the results from the alien before doing this so that he would have caught something like that Especially like you said the way that uh, christine chapel just trips in and go oh by the yeah. way doctor here's the result oh whoops <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah you definitely are like you would you know like this wasn't an emergency you could have waited 20 seconds you know but uh but like you said like the 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 story has gotten us to the point where that happened and the actors play that knowledge really, really well. Yeah. I, I think playing the knowledge really well, like it's just innate to them at this point. They're so practiced and seasoned mm -hmm. that it really, it's almost like a straw into, if not quite gold, at least copper. <laughs> that is what we're <laughs> dealing with here. Um, yeah. I, we just keep coming back to the same points. Maybe I just do. Maybe I am uh, the one who can't think of anything new to say. But it really is just, yeah, they're so good at that at this point that um, even if they're asleep behind the wheel, the people uh, in front of the cameras can keep things moving and active. And there's just enough goodwill at this point still that you can really enjoy this for what it is. Yeah, this is one of the, I feel like, problems with an episode like this that's like not awful and not great and comfort is like it's it's hard to find stuff to talk about about it for sure you know this right. happens in my horror book club a lot you know we'll get to a book and we're just like after 15 minutes like uh so what else did y'all do <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean 
you're both absolutely correct. And I think both providing excellent ways for us to end this episode. We've kind of <laughs> run out of things to say about this. So, um, okay, fine. We can wrap up Operation Annihilate there and move on to our scoring. So, uh, Bri, um, out of 10, what would you choose to give this episode? I think I'm going to say uh, six and a half. I, I came in thinking I might give it like an eight, but after talking about it, I think I've come down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Kev? Yeah, I, I think the guests tend to give things a little higher ratings because you're not watching every episode week to week. So it's like, <laughs> ah, seeing good Star Trek again. Ah, I love my friends and yeah. a little goodwill there. Um, meanwhile, I just saw Stadium Major Forever, so I'm going to go five. <laughs> it's like <laughs> maybe half of that episode. So, yeah. Uh, excellent. Good. Uh, well, Kev, we are as one today because I'm also going to give this five. I think it's bang in the middle, fifty percent. That's that's probably as much as it deserves. So I, mm-hmm. uh, I we we find ourselves in unusual parity this week. All right, lovely. Right. Well, in that case, we can move on to our recommendations. So, uh, Bri, you're a guest, so we will give you first shout. What would you like to recommend? Cool. Uh, yeah, I I had a few things I was thinking of, but I think the one that I'm gonna do. Uh, is a movie that I saw in theaters a few months ago, but I think is either newly or going to be soon available on Blu-ray and streaming uh, called Falcon Lake, uh, which is a French-Canadian kind of of coming-of-age film with a spooky, ghostly, mystical undercurrent to it uh, that I just, like thought was really, really lovely and really special. And one of those things where I'm, I'm quite excited to see uh, what the filmmaker uh, makes next. I don't know if it's their first film or not, but um, yeah. And the, the kind of movie that like has grown in my head since I saw it in that way that like is the, you know, sign of a really, of a really special movie. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kev, what would you like to give us this week? I'm sorry. I just went into Falcon Lake Wikipedia page. Uh, <laughs> like the direct- just like me, Kev. You are just like me. <laughs> The yeah, the director is an actor who's been in quite a few things. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I guess this is her first directed movie, but um, yeah, it's she was an actor in Fresh most recently, the Sebastian Stan, uh, his Edgar Jones thriller movie on Hulu, and oh. quite a few other things. Uh, got her start in Asterisk and Obelisk movie. Oh. I think that's how you pronounce it. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. Um. Yeah, Falcon Lake also sounds really cool. Uh, Char- Charlotte Le Bon is the name of the director, and Falcon Lake. This does sound really interesting. So I makes, will find time for makes it. Makes sense that she's in that she was an actress because it's one of those movies where you feel like the director really uh, mm. works with the actors really well. Really took mm. her time with them, you know. Yes. All right. Um, I'm also going to like shine a light on something newish from last year. Where it's like, oh wow, I was not. This is a very new auteur behind this, and I'm really excited what to do next. I'm gonna recommend a novel called *The House of Rust* by. Uh, let me listen to the AI pronunciation again. I hope this is correct. Uh, Kadija Abdallah Bahaber is what this how to pronounce website that hopefully I can trust says is how you pronounce her name. But yes, she is an African. Middle Eastern in that area of the world writer. Um, I was turned on to this book because it won the first Ursula K. Le Guin prize, oh. which is uh, an award that her estate has started giving out uh, starting this year. Yeah, um, that prize is really cool. The judges that they get for it are like such mm-hmm. a cool cross section of people. Yeah. So it was the first winner of that prize. Also, the first winner of, I haven't heard of this prize before I started looking into the book, but uh, the Grey Wolf Press Africa Prize. Um, and okay, so Kenyan specifically is the country. And yeah, this book, House of Rust, is just a very good, um, not magical realism, taking place in the real world, but, and sort of present day Kenya, but. It has that very Le Guin fantasy quality to it, which is why it's very appropriate it won that award. Very much just like a fable fairy tale ideas behind it. Very much grounded in character emotion and deep thoughts and feelings and themes. And think just like magic treated as matter-of-factly. No, like, 
Oh, it's the house of rust. You're a witch or whatever. No, it's just very much you stumble across something and something's not quite right with the world. In this case, uh, it's about the protagonist um, who I can't pull on Wikipedia. Oh, I wish I could remember her name. I read this a couple weeks ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but her father has gone missing at sea. They're about to pronounce him dead. She finds a cat that can talk. The cat leads her to a ship made of bones, and she goes off to rescue him. Uh, all oh, very... Ones you want sold immediately. <laughs> yes. It is so lovely. Uh, the mythology is so bewildering and deep, and they don't bother to explain much of it, which is that kind of stuff I love. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's just a really well-written book. The prose is incredible. There's just these moments of grace and humanity to it that made me tear up reading it. It's a wonderful little book. And again, going back to this, the fact that it won this inaugural um, Le Guin Award is so appropriate. It definitely feels like of that same lineage. And that is, I love Le Guin. I haven't even read all of her stuff yet, but I've read all of her Earthsea books and a good half of Hainish books. And yeah, what of the best authors to ever do it. So if you like that, I mean, rec I recommend those books as well, of course. But if you like that, then definitely The House of Rust, I can highly recommend as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, you've both given incredibly worthwhile and interesting and uh, noble recommendations. Whereas I am going to recommend Indiana Jones <laughs> and the Dial of Destiny. Um, <laughs> because I really, really liked it. Um, yeah. I don't know whether you want to say it was lowered expectations or like just general kind of like nothing feedback. But I had a day off work and I went to the cinema when it was nice and quiet and I sat there for two and a half hours and I had a thoroughly good time. I just really, really enjoyed it. I think it's not perfect. It is a, maybe a little bit overlong. Um, but as a conclusion to the whole Indiana Jones saga, it's a million, bajillion, thousand, million more times better than Crystal Skull because, you know, of course. Um, it's really uh, well put together. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is just great. I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge action hero is not something I had in my bingo card, and she's just amazing. I love watching her. She's got great rapport uh, with Harrison Ford. He himself is fantastic. He's, it's a, a really good performance from him. And I think it's a little bit disappointing um, that it's got a lot of negative press. I think some of that is simply down to the box office, but box office and good are never bedfellows at the best of times. And whether it's done well at the box office or not, I guess that will be clearer by the time this episode goes out. Um, but it doesn't really matter. And, you know, a lot of people have complained about the fact that, you know, oh, well, you know, why would you want to see, you know, your old adventurer, uh, sorry, your, your, you know, your young adventurer um, in his dotage and in his, in his old age. But then... Indiana Jones has always been about the power of relics. So, of course, he becomes one himself. Um, I love it. I think it's a thoughtful, well-constructed movie. Um, for those of you who are interested, I've done a whole write-up of it on my blog, which will Kevin will announce, as he always does at the end of this episode. Um, but, yeah, I just really love Dial of Destiny and so, so much more than I was expecting. So, um, you know, if, if you want to watch it, try and go in with an open mind. You know, give it a fair shake at the point. Uh, and, you know, it's 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 not as good as Raiders because Raiders is one of the best, you know, action-adventure movies ever. And it's not as good as The Last Crusade because The Last Crusade is one of the most charming and delightful movies ever. But it's still a really good movie on its own terms. So that's, that's my recommendation. Uh, Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny. So with that, um, oh, we wait, can... Wait. Oh, sorry, go on, Kev. I want a chance to react to that recommendation. <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I had to stop myself from blurting out when you said the title. You're going to recommend that? I'm sorry, JG. I fell asleep during that movie. Oh, I was really? so bored. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, you know, we're allowed to have different reactions to things. I, I don't know. I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. I've seen every Indiana Jones film contemporaneously mm. uh, in the mm. cinema because, you know um and i just i just loved it but that's fair enough yeah, that's, perfectly, that's fair you know. i mean my, my parents and my brother loved it too so it's like at least like really enjoyed it so yeah i i definitely understand obviously like room for different reactions i just don't know what it was about this one i was just like fully out of it i it just all felt like stuff i'd seen before but um i do second that people are really just a great actor i don't i think that character doesn't fully work for me she feels almost too modern in a way that I don't know, but I do love her, and I think she's fun. So that is the best praise I can give to it. Um, 
Yeah. I, I, w- I will say one thing, which is when I went to the cinema, it was exclusively kids or people my age. There was mm. nobody in between. <laughs> and you are in between those two things. So it, 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 might just, it might just be that it appeals to, you know, young kids who don't have any critical facilities or old farts like me who are past caring. I mean, it's also a possibility as well. <laughs> and, and I mean, Crystal Skull came out when I was a young kid, and that's why I have affection for it. So, you know, this is just, one of those things. I definitely like seeing people be like, Crystal Skull is actually really good lately. I'm like, I don't believe you, but I kind of want to check it out, you know, and see if I can find the beauty in it the way I try to find the beauty in most movies, you know? I think part of it is I'm just like sick. And I just think like the fact, I just think all the goofy (laughs) dumb stuff in that movie is actually funny and still and fun. But the, the, the three, the things I'll say in favor of Crystal Skull are a I think the college set piece is objectively a really well staged, well directed. Like the other action oh, yeah, scenes yeah. get kind of CGI and ropey, but the one in the college is really legitimately fun. And uh, this is again the more subjective territory, but I do think like Ray Stevenson's a lot of fun in that movie. I think he's so silly. Maybe that is what people more bump up against. And obviously, there's other things people will bump up against in that movie more too that I can't defend. But those are my two things. Oh, and I have a third thing. I really like the whole idea of in the nuclear age of the 50s, we are rebuilding the family and getting people back together. And it's a it's a weirdly wholesome ending. People are making the anti-divorce movie, when, especially <laughs> post-Fableman's, once you have all that backstory for his life. Uh, I don't know. I think there's stuff to dig in there. There, it, Those, yeah, kind of the latter two, I realize are weak defenses. I will go to that for the college action scene at least. Well, both of you have convinced me to watch both of those movies in a way yeah. that I didn't think I would. So, oh my God, what have we done? Right before we do, <laughs> before we do any more damage to 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 anything or anything, let's let's quickly get our get our uh, get our plugs out of the way, and we can end this episode before it all collapses in upon itself. So, uh, Bright, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, so yeah, actually, I did think of a thing to plug. Um, it's not something of my own, but. There is a bookstore in Philadelphia called A Novel Idea, uh, and it's just a really lovely bookstore run by lovely people with great events, and they're having a little bit of financial trouble right now. So if you live in Philadelphia or you're looking to order some books delivered to you wherever you are, I highly recommend doing it through them. Uh, They also have a GoFundMe going right now to help pay for their, I think, like rent over the next couple of months. So if you Google a novel idea, GoFundMe, uh, one of those places that just like I live in this city and I don't want to see it go away because it brings me a lot of joy. Uh, So that's my plug. (laughs) Fantastic. That's incredibly worthwhile. (laughs) All right. Then I think that wraps things up. Um, You can find, well... So you, I am not actively on Twitter these days much anymore because that site started limiting the amount of posts you can see and really <laughs> went in a bad direction. I, uh, I did. Uh, I also changed my at. So if you try looking me up at the end of City of the Edge of Forever episode, sorry about that. But um, my at is now at Max Rebo's Roadie, the same as my screen name. Uh, like, like the Star Wars guy, but what if the person was setting up his speakers? Um <laughs> And I don't post on Twitter at all anymore. I just use it to lurk and check DMs because it just annoys me so much. But I am active on Blue Sky under the same name, Max Rebo's Roadie. But if you have a Blue Sky invite, feel free to follow me there. Um, other, uh, Maybe I'll hold off on plugging that more until that becomes more public and functional. But it is a nice little place where there's not as much people screaming at each other there. So I'm, that's <laughs> why it's like, well, now that enough people are on here, I can have a little more peace of mind um yeah yeah you can find more jg's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott jgmcquarrie.scott uh i also frequently guest on the podcast total massacre about action movies host baron kaiser jg has his own podcast as well beatles Stephologies, going through the beatles track by track and as for this podcast we're on twitter at talk trek to you and you can find us uh there and promote us by liking reviewing and subscribing to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us fantastic thank you very much and uh brian thank you very much for joining us in this episode 
Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. This was uh, a lot of fun, even if it was kind of a lesser episode. It's just mm -hmm. fun to talk about Star Trek. Well, it's always fun to talk about Star Trek, and thank you. You have perfectly set me up for the thing that I need to plug next, which is to say, this is the end of the first season, and it's been it's been a ride, I think it's fair to say. Um, and so before we plunge back into our season two reviews, which will certainly be coming up, uh, we're going to take an episode to reflect on what we have watched so far. I've been returning to this series after a very, 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 very long time of watching it, Kev, as we know, is our noob uh, who has come to it fresh. So we're going to spend a little bit of time just doing a recap of the first season. And, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.